Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the News Agent Podcast. I'm Susie Lysett, Content Manager at Goodlord, and this session is a recording of our webinar, What Can Agents Do About Unsustainable Pressures in the Private Rental Sector? Goodlord CEO William Reeve led the session, and he was joined by Megan 18, Business Development Manager at Haslams, and Robert Bolwell, Senior Partner at Dutton Gregory. The three speakers share their insights and expertise on a range of topics, including the Renters' Reform Bill and Making Tax Digital, as well as sharing some advice on how to overcome some of these market challenges. So without any further ado, let's crack on with the podcast. Morning, everybody, and welcome to our latest webinar. Uh, here from Goodlord, uh, talking about what agents can do um, about the unsustainable pressures in the private rental sector. So those of you who don't know, Goodlord, Goodlord is, the, uh, is a software platform that provides the best way to progress lettings deals remotely. Um, has a whole variety of features, um, starting at the uh, point of uh, signing landlords up to the terms of business, um, generating contracts, e-signing payments, uh, handling deposits, collecting rent, um, all the way providing agents with automated compliance reporting, um, as well as extra services. Uh, Our latest one being the all bills included feature we launched last summer. But I'm not here to provide the sales pitch. I'm really uh, here to help, help agents understand the uh, pressures going on in the sector. So we're hoping to be joined here by uh, two esteemed guests. Um, one of them, I think, is just dialing in, um, but might turn to Megan to introduce herself. Hello, thanks for having me. So um, I work at Haslam's Estate Agents in Reading um, as a business development manager. Um, I also have joined the Arla Advisory Panel, um, so do a lot of work behind the scenes there. Um, been in the industry for around 15 years and my job here at Haslam's is to streamline the processes, do a bit of training, um, but ultimately try and win new business for, for the team. Super, thank you. We're very lucky to have you join us. Thank you. Um, we definitely are expecting Robert, um, unless uh, some disaster before him. So, um, but I think in the meantime, let's kick off. So um, if I just jump to slide five. We've got six things to talk about today. Um, we're going to just kick off and um, talk a little bit about our recent initiative to write an open letter on behalf of uh, literally hundreds of people, actually, regarding these unsustainable pressures. We'll give a quick update around making tax digital. Then we'll look at the rental renters reform bill, uh, the latest news and what uh, from that and what to expect on that. And then we'll dig in a bit um, on how what advice we have for landlords um, how we should be adapting agencies um, or agencies should adapt against market shocks. And finally, we'll try and close on some of the positives of the changes going on in the market at the moment. Robert, I can see you're nearly with us. Um, I'm just going to push on in the meantime, though. Um, so let's, for those of you who have not been following it, um, I just want to talk a little bit about the um, open letter that we, we have. I'm going to jump on, I think, two slides, please, Sarah. So we have a good Lord led an initiative um, a few weeks back to write a, write a letter publicly to the Minister of State for Housing, the then Minister of State for Housing, one might note. And th- this was really just highlighting how um, a lot of the pressures in the industry with sort of lack of stock, landlords leaving the market, rents shooting up, uh, a lot of stress for tenants and applicants um, uh, are not sort of acts of God, but actually stem directly from um, government policies. And we were, we were calling for recognition that actually there's some of those policies are, are sort of dri- driving some of that pressure. We were very... Thrilled, really, to, to see the level of support for that. Uh, um, I'll just jump on a slide, please, Sarah. We were um, 
we actually have had now over a thousand people join join show their support and add their name to the letter um which um we, we delivered the physical version back in christmas but with the letter still still public still gaining support i think we're just we're just approaching 1100 signatures from all across the space uh, letting agents landlords um uh, industry suppliers and um and and a whole, whole range of people um in in all the in all from all the parts of the United Kingdom, so um, th- there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot more noise and awareness, I think, of, um, of of some of these dynamics, and I think we've been very grateful for all that support. Um, and uh, you know, some of those themes that we'll be touching on later on in the in this webinar might be a good time to just introduce Robert. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for joining. Um, do you want to just uh, sort of say a few words about an uh, introduction for those people who are new to you? Yes, good morning, everybody. Um, some of you may know me already. I'm a partner with Duck and Gregory Sisters, and I guess most of my, my working life has been sorting out landlord and tenant issues. So, you know, having looked at what Good Lord has done, having looked at the impetus behind the changes, I think, you know, we all need to get on board. We all need to make our opinions known to government, whether it's your local MP um, or a slightly higher levels of Good Lord are doing. I, I welcome everything we can do to try and impress upon government the importance of the private rented sector and how that. You know, what they have to do or not do is, is anything to upset the proverbial apple cart. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it, William. Great. Um, thank you very much. Um, yes, and I, we've, had, we've had some people asking kind of what, what, why was Good Lord um, doing, uh, getting, getting so involved in this? And I think um, it stems really from, you know, what, what Good Lord's mission is to make the renting experience better uh, for everybody involved with it. And um, you know we're fortunate now to be uh, involved with a, with a, a lot of the um, activity going on in the UK. We see a lot of the activity. We can see firsthand really how much how much of the stress and pressure the market's under. So just I know some people have been asking that off, offline. I thought I'd just give a bit of context there. Um, but last time we had uh, one of these webinars with Robert, we were talking about making tax digital. So I just wanted to give a quick update on because there's been quite a bit of news on that since we last spoke. Um, so let's jump onto slide nine, please, Sarah. Um, and um robert do you want to just sorry this this uh this is a this is a new slide but i think uh hopefully pretty self-explanatory do you want to just sort of set out what's changed since we last spoke uh just just talk you through it i mean most of you probably know that um coming in the not too distant future you'll have to find your tax returns not with a bit of paper like we've done for, for generations but literally you'll do it online using software which is compatible we've got the revenues at the moment um, if you are in a business where you file a VAT return every quarter, you will probably be aware that from last year, from about November of last year, you had to do that digitally. You could not do it on a bit of paper. Well, that is coming to uh, the landlord sector. Originally, it was going to be something like 2023. Then they pushed it back to April of 2024. The latest pronouncement from the revenue is that digital taxation will come to landlords in April of 26. Now, originally, when they were talking about this, it really meant that landlords had to file not just their annual return online, but they had to file a quarterly return, just like a VAT return. And it would apply to any landlord who had a rental income of 10K a year or more. Now, if you think about it, you don't need many properties in your portfolio to go beyond that threshold. So the latest suggestion is that from April of 26, that threshold for landlords will be 50K. But it's not 50K just in um, rental income. It's 50K in income from your business or and or from your rental portfolio. So watch this space. 2026 is when it's all going to happen. 
to be honest, and I know I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to politics, the numbers may change, the date may change. So just keep reading your, your updates from Good Lord. Keep going on these seminars because when it changes, yeah, I'm sure William and the others of Good Lord will let everybody know. Yeah, super. Um, thank you very much uh, for that, Robert. Any, anybody on the webinar, by the way, who's got questions, there's a Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. Um, and uh, very happy to take questions uh, as we go. And we will um, we'll also be uh, have, have a bit of time at the end for them. Um, but yeah, let's turn to the rental, Renters Reform Bill. So um, uh, let's... Um, so th- this has been in the works for quite a while. Um, Robert, I might ask you to just sort of... So what's the latest state of play on this? When, when can we expect this, do you think? Well, nobody really knows. Uh, I mean, you say it's been in the wind for a long time. It has. I mean, if we go back to, you know, 2017, there was talk then about scrapping the Section 21 notice. And that is the headline element of of the reforms the government wants to bring in. And there are reforms at the moment, at least so far as Section 21s are concerned, are supported by every major political party out there. So, some people may say it'll never happen. It will happen at some stage, Section 21's again. But you're right to raise the question, William, when is it going to happen? And to be honest, we don't really know. It was the early summer of last year we had the white paper, which is going to form the basis of the renters' reform bill. And at that stage, they were talking about getting the bill out for us all to have a look at sometime uh, within a 12-month period. Then that slipped back to September of this year, September 23. And when Michael Gove last was quizzed on this, I think on the Today programme, actually, on BBC Radio 4, he said, by the end of 24, in other words, by December of 2000, sorry, 23, he's likely to have that bill. Now, the problem I've got, William, is that it may have cross-party support in its embryonic stage, but when um, MPs and those in the House of Lords start looking at the bill in detail, you can probably say it's going to be the best part of a year to get through all the stages the bill has to get through before it comes law. Now, if it becomes law before an election, well, that's fine. It'll be on the statute sometime, probably in 2025. But if it doesn't make it through Parliament, by the time this Parliament comes to an end and we have a general election, well, all bets are off. So if we do get the bill introduced in December of 23 and it's passed into law in 24, fine. But of course, we all know that we're going to have to have an election sometime before the first weeks of January 25. So, you know, it's a bit up in the air. But what I would say is, you know, because it's got cross-party support, at least the White Paper's got cross-party support in some respects, those Section 21s will go. And what, of course, we don't know is whether it'll be Michael Gove's department that gets the reforms done, or whether it might be the new government. I mean, of course, if there's a new government, we don't at the moment know what colour that new government is going to be. So it's all a bit up in the air. Just actually on that point, there's a question around the making tax digital from Jonathan Chalice, just wondering, is, does Labour have a view on that? Or, or can we assume there's a bipartisan support for the making tax digital as well? For the main for the main issues, yes, it's got bipartisan support. I mean, if we go back to the tax thing, um, the idea the government doesn't really want to catch accidental landlords, I think the last slide said. But of course, when you file your digital tax return, you're going to have to be sort of estimating what your tax is going to be. And it will probably speed up the collection of revenue from poor old landlords. And of course, in that respect, it will have, again, cross-party support, just like the Section 21 thing does. Whether other elements of the 
renters reform bill will get quite the same degree of cross-party support we don't know and the reason we don't know is we don't actually know what the renters reform bill is going to contain if it follows the um, line of the white paper literally um to, to the letter yeah there may be some mps will object to it most mps think it's wonderful even if they do come from the other parties um what we do have at the moment though is a, a bit of a committee made up of those from the industry um national residential landlords association property mark government departments, they have this cross-party committee looking at what was suggested in the white paper. They published their latest report a week or so ago. And one of the things they homed on are, are, are students, because you may recall in the white paper, they said, um, whilst the rest of us will be dealing with periodical rollover tenancies, they might still keep fixed-term tenancies for students in purpose-built student accommodation. Well, I don't quite understand the logic of students having to be in purpose-built accommodation to be accepted from that part of the proposals. But, you know, and that's been criticised by the committee. So before we actually get to the Renters Reform Bill, there will be lots of tinkering with the ideas at grassroots level. So, again, just just watch the space. Graham, is there any, do you see any signs for hope on the long-term agenda that, that, that something will be done to um, even out the balance between demand and supply? Well, if we go back to, to Boris Johnson, I mean, he famously came up with a figure of 300,000 new homes every year. That's what we need to build effectively to, to get supply and demand in equilibrium. And I think if we were building 300,000 homes a year, yeah, I could say great opportunities for, for people who are building, people who are selling. But we're not. I mean, at the moment, the last year of which figures are available is the uh, financial year 21-22. And in that year, it was about 204,000 new homes we built. So even in our best year for ages, we are 30% less than we should be building. Now, if you think about what that means for the private rented sector, it means there's always going to be an imbalance between those who need property, need homes, need somewhere to rent, and what's available. So being quite mercenary about it if, if i was a landlord at the moment i'd be quite optimistic about where my rental levels might be two three four years from now because we're just not building the homes people need so i don't think there's any clear sign that we'll get to equilibrium anytime soon not unless we have a massive change in policy um we do as you allude to at the beginning we have a new housing minister you know she's been in the job less than a month whether that will mean a change in government policy where they'll get more targets more pressure to build homes i, I really don't know it's it's, it's, it's always a, a question of cash and this government doesn't have much yeah very helpful thank you um then we might turn a bit more to look at what um the impact on the ground of this is and um megan i'm looking for a bit of help on sort of uh, common uh, on the commentary here um we we asked uh, for the people who've um signed up to support the open letter we asked them if, if for uh, any any suggestions on policy recommendations for them and this is this is what we found from that um taxation very much top of the list um and even even um for people who who think that actually they they want some changes in the rental reform bill so most of the changes they're looking for there appear to be tax related um though there are some other suggestions here around government reviews encouraging uh, more supply and um, incentives for that, and um, looking at how they how what what they're requiring from an EPC front. Um, but Megan, do, do, when when you had a look at the, these data, uh, do, is this what you expected? Any surprises here? No, I think uh, is is the honest answer is no. I think when we actually spoke before the webinar, we said uh, you said what would you do if you had a magic wand, Megan? And I said I think we'd have to sort the tax issues out. So um, it doesn't surprise me that 
the fellow agents on this call felt the same. So um, taxation is a massive part. I think for me, um, the pejorative language that's being used when discussing landlords at the moment within the media, within the political parties, does not help the cause at all. Um, so it does put us in that position where we're having to almost um, defend the undefendable. Um, and I think if people could really see a, a full picture on what a landlord actually is, it isn't just somebody that's in a nice suit who's full of you know, bags of money. Um, and I think if we start flipping the dial on that, we might see that we'll have a bit more of a chance. But as Robert so eloquently put, um, we're very far off that, um, which is, you know, it's alarming. Absolutely. Um, and Robert, you mentioned the student um, dynamics around purpose-built health. Uh, housing but this point um around offsetting expenses do you want to just elaborate on that a bit um yeah i mean there are sort of two things to think about i mean number one tax i mean megan's absolutely right if you think about the changes we've seen the tax regime over the last 10 15 years it's always hitting landlords you know if you want to increase your portfolio as a landlord you've got the extra stamp duty you've got to pay. Um, if you're trying to run a, a business where well, you're not even treated as a business by the revenue, you're treated as someone who can never make a loss. So losses are difficult to carry forward. Um, you know, we've lost the, the writing down allowance for fair wear and tear. There's been all sorts of things hitting landlords over the course of the last few years. And the biggest one, of course, was this mortgage interest thing. You know, you can claim your basic rate, but you can't claim it against your higher rate. So I think the government's got to decide what it wants. If it really wants to get rid of the private rented sector, yeah, carry on with what they're doing. Keep hitting the private rented sector. My problem, though, is I think the private rented sector now is, is too big to fail. I mean, if we go back to the last year to which four figures are available, 2020, 4.4 million homes were in the private rented sector. You know, that was almost 20% of people living um, in, in this country. Um, if you take forward to, you know, a couple of years ago, you throw in the, the social sector, you know, it's a third of people are now renting their homes. So I would say probably we've got to a stage where I think the private rented sector is too big to fail. And we've got to make ourselves heard. We've got to stretch the government that we are providing you know, good homes, we're providing a service, we are housing the population of this country, and we need a little bit of support. We are not simply the whipping boy that government can turn to every time we want to raise a bit more money, you know, to spend money somewhere else. So all those things we, we've got to focus on, really. And I, you know, I welcome anything like an open letter. I, let, I welcome people writing to their MP, writing to local councillors, making our voice heard. But yeah, we need to think about supporting landlords. Now, one of the things that came up um, in, in the so-called white paper was a possibility of a housing court. It works really well in Scotland. So, yeah, I'd love a housing court in this country. But students, the way we treat students, at least in the, the, the white paper, is, is, is absolutely crazy. We are going to carve out, if Michael Gove has his way, a different type of tenancy of students in student accommodation. Well, you know, most of us who do this job on a regular basis know that students aren't in purpose-built accommodation for most of their time at university. They're with us. They're in the private rented sector. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why on earth do we have different types of tenancy depending on the type of property a student happens to occupy? So, again, these are all things that, you know, the Joint Committee with um, ARLA, with the National Landlords Association, they're all considering, which is why I think it's very wrong now to try and anticipate what final form of the renters reform bill will be because hopefully everything we're doing i mean things like the good lord open letter hopefully it will get through to the michael goes of this world and to you know to our new housing minister so you know watch this space there will be an awful lot of misinformation out there 
Um, I usually say it comes from the Sunday supplements. Uh, and I think the important thing that we as an industry have to do is not just lobby government, but we also have to start educating our landlords. Um, landlords should come to us. We're the experts. You know, the agents are the people who know what's going on, and they should really be the centre for a landlord's focus when they want to know what's happening out there and what's likely to happen, you know, in the six months, 12 months ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, Sarah, could we jump? I, I, I'm having trouble getting onto the next slide. Can we just jump onto the next slide, please? Okay, super. Sorry. Um, sorry, that was the slide I, I've been trying to share. Um, so, yeah, this this was the um, point suggested by agents in the open letter. And again, I think Robert's just covered quite a lot of the ground sort of suggested here. But um, uh, there was, and there was, there is, there is a, um, there is a point around pets as well, isn't there? Which I know has been upsetting some people. Um, do you want to just mention that one, Robert? Yeah, uh, pets. Um, if you go back to the consumer legislation we have from two thousand and fifteen, I mean, basically what that says is every clause in any agreement signed by a consumer must be fair. It must be reasonable. And of course, that's been interpolated into a short, short old tenancies, which means, yeah, every clause in your AST must be fair because you're dealing with a consumer by definition there, the tenant is going to be their home. And one of the things that have come up fairly frequently are pets. Now, most of us say you can't have pets. In the good old days, before we had the um, tenant fees ban legislation, if somebody wanted a pet, we would simply increase the deposit. Well, of course, that option is not available to us now. So now what we tend to say is if you want a pet, we're going to put the rent up. And that extra margin on the rent will offset the risk of damage by the pet, et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, there is a move from various organisations favouring dogs and cats to say, well, that in itself is a bit unfair. Why should somebody, a tenant with a pet, pay more rent? Well, our response is, well, because... Um, it's likely to cause damage. Um, what Michael Gove suggested in his white paper is that insurance might be one way around this. Now, where this makes it into the, um, the, the famous rental reform bill, I simply do not know. But the suggestion, if we go back to last June, was you should have a right to have a pet if you're a tenant, but you as a tenant need to then take out some sort of insurance to cover against the additional damage that pet might do to the property. And of course, the beneficiary of that insurance policy would be the good old landlord. Now, that's got all sorts of implications about insurance uh, premiums, things in the tax you pay on insurance, and of course, under the tenant fee ban legislation, because at the moment, you cannot charge um, a tenant for that sort of insurance premium. So if Michael Gove has his way and he wants to sort out pets and give tenants his absolute right to have a pet subject to insurance, he's going to have to go back to Parliament and change the um, tenant fee ban legislation to make that premium a legitimate expense and not a, an unlawful payment. So again, there's an awful lot about this, which to my mind means that you know, we're not going to get this legislation easily through Parliament. You know, even if they started today, it's still a year away. But Michael Gove is talking about publishing the bill at the end of the year. So, you know, watch this space. But that's what the government thinking is on pets at the moment. We should all have a pet. But if you want a pet, you might have to take extra insurance to benefit the landlord. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, question actually on the chat from um, wondering whether there will be any changes expected around the tenancy deposit schemes in the rental reform? Anything, anything flagged there? 
No, I mean, if, if we turn the clock back five years, government was very, very keen on having a single deposit which would follow a tenant from property to property to property to property. Um, now, that seems to have died a death. And in the white paper, there was a, a paragraph in which Michael Gove was saying that he thinks the industry has risen to the challenge because, of course, we now have we now have insurance policies that will provide that deposit. So at the moment, there is no talk in the white paper about changing the way deposits operate. Yeah, we will still have that that limit depending on how, how much rent you're paying. Um, we're not going to go back to the days where, you know, the deposit could be anything at all. So um, probably no change on deposits. But again, you know, we just don't know, but probably no change on deposits. Yeah. Um, okay, so just moved on to the next slide here. So... Um, what this one was uh, looking at was a, was just uh, perceptions from agents and landlords around, first of all, house prices. Uh, secondly, um, the amount of landlords um, coming into the market. Thirdly, um, what's happening to agent fees. And fourthly, what's happening to rent arrears. Um, and br- I think this, this data really sh- shows signs of the pressures on the market because um, you know, f- f- the vast majority of um, poll respondents expect house prices going up. Um, uh, vast majority uh, expect the number of landlords uh, to decrease. Um, management fees are expected to go up, and possibly as regular agent optimism. I'll ask Megan a bit about that in a moment. Uh, and um, but also expecting tenants to be struggling to pay their rent. So again, majority of people expecting um, the cost of living crisis to be um, really impacting rent arrears. So, um, M- Megan, what do you make of these these uh, pie charts? Um, I mean, I think I align pretty closely with them all. The interesting one is around management fees, because we have over the last few years had to reduce our management fees that we we all pushed them up after the Tenant Fee Act came in. And obviously over the years where where supply has become lower, we have had to reduce them back down. But interestingly, as agents, you know, one minute we're having to act as immigration and then we're having to act as energy efficiency, you know, such a massive scale of scope in that and then in in the middle of that we have to understand all of these changes and all of these issues so it's it's no surprise we deserve the the higher fees to be to be perfectly honest although I'm sure Joe Bloggs in the public would not agree with that um landlord volumes I think that's safe to say we're all seeing it the the stock overall I think locally for me it was 39 percent but I think you put in the open letter it was 46 percent across the country which is pretty um pretty damning in itself um naturally rents are going up we're all seeing it it's probably the only positive from a landlords but we're also seeing it it becoming quite a sore subject and and with that obviously comes with the fear of making sure tenants can afford the properties and are we protecting our landlords against tenants that maybe are earning the same salary but maybe paying an extra 200 pounds a month more in bills yeah it's amazing isn't it um Absolutely. And, and um, are you seeing signs of the rent arrears going up already or is that more of a forward looking expectation? I think more of a forward looking expectation. We've made a massive push ourselves to ensure that we've got a robust rent and legal protection in place for a lot of our clients. And we're seeing a huge take up of that, um, which I think is showing that people are a little worried about what's going to happen. Um, actually, as a as an office, we're not doing too bad on the arrears front, but it is a fear for us, certainly um, in the future, definitely. Yeah, certainly we're seeing the um, rent protection um, products that 
you know, obviously we, we, we provide premium more popular than ever at the moment because it just provides that level of protection. I think this is a common widespread worry. And, and you know, when you're, when you're worried, insurance is one of the ways to sleep, sleep peacefully at night, isn't it? Um, and I might just jump on one more slide here. And this just, this just looks really at the um, good old rental index, um, which is the, um, what we see is happening to rents over the last couple of years by region across England. Um, and um, the, the headline here is that um, these numbers have gone up by about 20% um, uh, over the last two years. So typical rents are 20% higher over, over the last two years. So that speaks to the, some of the pressures around rent arrears, speaks to, um, as you said, Megan, actually from most letting agents' point of view, um, the, the, the fees they're earning are going up in line with that too. Um, but, um, you know, the, the obviously one has to ask yourself, how, how long does this continue? Um, um, okay. Um, so I might, uh, I think I might, might move us on to thinking about what, what would we be advising landlords here? So we'll jump on a slide, please. Uh, and um, one of the uh, things we need to be talking about here with the decent home standards. Um, Robert, I might just ask you to elaborate a bit more on what, what that involves. Yeah, um, most people in the private rent sector haven't come across that decent homes standard before. It was brought in years ago uh, for properties in the public sector, you know, um, local authority properties, um, housing associations. And what it did is it brought into play um, a set of slightly higher standards for an individual home than we have in the private rented sector. Yeah, in, in, in the public sector, you've still got things like Section 11 obligations, you know, all the things you've got to repair. You've still got the health and hazard rating system, which is applicable right the way across the industry. But in the, in the public sector, the, the social sector, if you like, there was an understanding that your facilities in the property should be reasonably modern for example so you know if you have a kitchen which is more than 20 years old that might be suspect if you've got a, a bathroom more than 30 years old that might be suspect. and there's a whole list of things now what michael goes said in his white paper is he saw no reason why this slightly higher expectation in the public or the social sector should not now apply to the private sector um, then on the 2nd of september the government announced a whole review of the decent home standard so when the new standard for public or social properties is published sometime in 2023, watch out because in the uh, reform bill, when we see it, we could see a situation where those standards in the public sector are now put on to the private sector. Now, there's a slight irony in all of this because, I mean, some of you may remember the tragic death of the toddler in Rochdale last summer. Uh, it was a property which, you know, I've only saw the photographs, the property was absolutely appalling. It had mould everywhere. The family had complained, nothing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And initially, when you read the news reports, or you read your Sunday supplements, you thought, oh, my God, this is another Rackman landlord out there. But say the irony of the situation was that was a property owned by a housing association in the public sector or the social sector. And the decent home standards did apply to that property in which the toddler died. Um, I don't think there was um, any love lost between our industry and the media, but eventually people did acknowledge that it wasn't the private rented sector that, that was owning that property, it was the public sector. But that's the sort of emotion you get around this topic. So I can see a situation, and yes, we are going to have a scenario where the decent home standards in this new form, whatever that might be, is going to come to a, to a property in your portfolio fairly shortly. 
Now, if it does, and you have got landlords who've got very old kitchens, very old facilities, very old bathrooms or whatever, yeah, they might be hit with yet another bill to start upgrading what's in their property. But, you know, until we know what the new standard's going to say, until we actually see the bill and we know it's going to be given to us in a private rented sector, again, it's nothing to panic about. But, you know, the message here has got to be, I'm afraid that crappy properties, as I sometimes say, do usually attract crappy tenants. And landlords have got to understand that if they want the best returns on their property, they've got to invest. And that is not just in buying another property. That means in looking after the stock you've got and making sure they are decent in the widest sense, you know, for homes in the 21st century. So that's all I'm going to say on the decent home standards. But watch this space again. Wait for the bill, I'm afraid, William. Very helpful. Thank you. What about one of the key questions for many landlords, which is capital growth? Um, Megan, if I was one of your landlords, how would you be advising me? I think that's a very good question, William. How would I advise you? Um, I I think it's a really difficult one because at the moment, um, capital growth is, you know, over the last hundred years, if we look at property, it has increased. Rents are at an all time high. And I think it really depends on that particular landlord. And I think we we briefly touched on this off air about the different types of landlords that we work with. So, um, you know, for example, here we like to categorise our landlords. So we've got accidental landlords, pension landlords and portfolio landlords. Now, the advice that I'm going to give one of those landlords is going to be different. Um, accidental landlords, obviously, at the moment are very fearful. They didn't really want to be here. They don't want to be part of this party. Um, we all barely want to be at this point. Um, But the important thing for them is making sure that they're able to offload their assets in a really safe way, um, that they're not out of pocket. Now, it is at times um, tricky to then expand your portfolios because obviously interest rates are so high at the moment. But with that, we're hoping to see a dip down in house prices for sales. Sorry, I shouldn't have said hope. I'm a letting agent. I can't help it. Um, But the more we can get more in, the better it will be for everybody. Um, But that's really the best things we can hope for. Um, One thing I just wanted to add on to the decent home standards um, point that Robert made. I think the word that I kept hearing was might. And the big problem we have is, is that even the current decent home standards policies that are in place are so vague and so unhelpfully clear um, that we just need clear guidance you know letting agents are sticklers for detail and we want to know exactly what that means is your kitchen over 20 years old we have a problem you know we want that clear definition and I think we as agents have to push back on that and say look we need a clear definition of how many people can live in this property to make it safe all of these things so um but I welcome um safer housing I think it's good I think that um, as long as we're not being um, compared to social housing and the same that we have recently, we're not social housing. They could barely support it themselves. So let's see if we can get some clearer guidance. Um, and what about um, the mortgage outlook at the moment? How do you think that's going to play out? Well, we're starting to see it soften back down from what I can tell. You know, I'm not a mortgage specialist. So I'm not going to pretend that I am. But from where we were pre-Christmas to where we are now, it's certainly looking more positive. But we can't sustain this level of um, pressure on the on the um, interest rate. So it's something that has to give. Now, that affects landlords, but it also affects homeowners. And of course, all these people that they want to buy their first home with. Uh, they can't they can't afford to so irrespective of what pressures they're putting on our landlords they're not helping first-time buyers either so something has to give um 
you know, very interesting. And um, and of course, we've Robert mentioned earlier the, uh, the sort of three hundred thousand um, number around house house building targets, but that seems a long way away from reality at the moment, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it does. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sorry, Robert, I was just about to say, um, I was just going to add as well, that one of the big fights that we're having at local level is that people want more housing, but they're also fighting to protect their green space. So we're sort of in this position where you're like, OK, you want somewhere for your family to live, but you don't want to give up green space. So it's like a balance, isn't it? And Robert? Yeah, the only thing, I, I think I'll add something to that. Um, I, I don't know how many people on this webinar are into HMO territory, but one thing which council are beginning to do across the country are reclassified HMOs. So one of my favourite authorities down where I am in, in Hampshire is Portsmouth. So what Portsmouth started doing is looking at all the HMOs. And if you have an HMO, we say, you know, five bedsits inside the HMO, what they've started doing in the last year or so is reclassifying each of those five bedsits in one HMO as a separate unit, as a separate property. They then banned each of those rooms as a band A for council tax. And all of a sudden, statistically, where they had one property before, they now technically have five properties tomorrow morning, which increases their council tax take. But more importantly, as far as government is concerned, all of a sudden we've got an extra four properties in the borough, you know, which is absolutely fantastic on, on, on for statistics. But of course, it doesn't actually change the number of properties that are available to, to tenants to rent. And that is happening across the country now. So just be wary if you are into HMO territory and you get a call from your local valuation officer, that's probably what they're going to be doing. So we've got a couple of questions around rent reviews and increases. Um, one um, from Mo Sidera around, um, have you got any advice around how to handle a rent increase for housing benefit tenants whose tenancy has become periodic after 12 months? Uh, and the other one, just a question around, have rent reviews always been in tenancy agreements um, or is that a new thing? Robert, I might get you to lead um, off on that. Right? Yeah, if I start off on that, I mean, a lot of people watching this will have a fairly standard tenancy agreement from what, from Good Lord or from Arla or whatever. Many standard agreements now will have an automatic rent review clause. Now, there are three ways to increase rent. Um, either you rely on your tenancy agreement and if you have a clause in there that's the way you've got to go if you don't have an automatic increase clause in your tenancy you've got to wait to the end of the fixed term and either you then renegotiate the whole package where you renegotiate the rent or you serve this thing called a section 13 notice which you can do once a year but you can't do it during a fixed term you've got to wait till the fixed term is up now the problem with the section 13 notices is up to the landlord to specify the rent he wants in a month's time the new rent but on the back of the form, it tells the tenant all about their ability to appeal to a first-tier tribunal to get that rent reviewed. And what a first-tier tribunal can do quite legitimately is say, oh, we don't think this is a market rent for the property, even though rents may have gone up, may have gone down your area, and they will impose on the landlord and the tenant a new figure. Well, you know, going before a rent uh, tribunal or first-tier tribunal is time-consuming, it's not cheap and the worst thing comes to the worst is you don't really know what your outcome is going to be so for all those reasons a lot of standard tenancies now have an automatic rent review clause in there you can have any formula you like to assess the new rent you can say a market rent but that 
raises the question, what is a market rent? Typically, you'll have RPI or CPI in there. So you know what the percentage is from the, the government department and you simply apply that, write a letter, and that's the new rent as long as you're following the letter of your rent review clause. Now, that's fairly standard. There wasn't a great deal in the white paper about going forward, but what Michael Gove thinks should be in the future is the inability to raise rent more than once every two years. So that's a different scenario than what we have now, because at the moment you simply raise rent in accordance with your clause, if there is a clause, if it says every month, every six months, every year, that's what it says. Um, if it's not in the tenancy, a section 30 notices every year. But that may change if Michael Gove sees his proposals through all the way to the Renters Reform Bill. Very helpful. And um, Megan, anything to add or any advice around how you'd handle, how you'd advise the landlord to handle um, housing benefit tenants on a period, who've moved on to a periodic? I think Robert's kind of summarised it. I think it's a very delicate situation that you have to handle there. Um, It's interesting, Robert, one thing that I had personally flag up, which I'd be really interested to know your view on, is that when there's been an RPI increase, obviously RPI, you know, it's set where it goes, you know, we, we don't control that. But we had situations where they didn't use their RPI increase and then two years later wanted to. And it was so far off where the current market value was. So it's a very difficult place to sit, isn't it? So what would be your advice in that situation? I would always compromise for a couple of reasons. Number one, to see your tenant go and check in, find another tenant is time-consuming and costly. So from a landlord's point of view, you've got to be reasonable. The other thing is if you go back to when the uh, legislation for ASTs was first introduced all the way back in, in 1988, the tribunal always has the ability to intervene if someone is paying more than the market rent. So in theory, even if you insist on a lacking great big rent increase, it's possible that if you're way out of kilter with the market, you're way above the market, yeah, your tenant could take you anyway to a first-tier tribunal if they took advice from a, a CAB or a lawyer who knew what they were talking about. So I think from the landlord's point of view, you've always got to be reasonable. It's better to have a tenant paying slightly less, but someone you trust and you know the rent's coming in, than pushing it and pushing it and pushing it into an area where we come back to the side, tenant affordability. If they really can't afford it, all you're doing is creating a hole later on. And if you think about it, your typical possession case to get somebody out of property is going to be £1,500, £1,600, that's a lot of rent to negotiate over, but it's it's what you might be facing as a landlord if they simply can't afford to pay, despite what they may say on, on day one. The other issue, of course, in housing benefit claimants is a local housing allowance. Um, you know, every local authority will have scales. So if you're saying, I'm entitled to a 10% increase, and that takes you way outside the local housing allowance, what's the point? All you're doing is creating a problem further down the line. So, you know, you've got to know your tenants, you've got to know your local authority, you've got to know what's achievable. And ultimately, you've got to explain to the landlord what the risks are of pushing it beyond what perhaps, you know, you make an eye might, might say is a reasonable increase. That was an interesting point about the local housing allowance as well, because I urge anybody who's listening to this call, if you have not looked at your current local housing allowance versus market rent, it will absolutely blow your mind. It is shockingly um, completely out. I think Reading's around 30% out. So it's scary. Yeah. Um, So we've got three more things to cover. So let's turn to the next slide, which is really about how to adapt your agency to protect against some of these pressures. Um, Um. We've got, I think, three points on the slide. Megan, do you want to kick off on this one? 
Absolutely. Um, so we, we covered about keeping up to date and informed. I think Robert briefly touched on it earlier. Us as agents, we need to become the experts in this. And whilst we call ourselves the experts, are we actually making sure that we understand that? Um, we've put here about being a good partner um, for a landlord. That also filters back down to your team. So if your team are not equipped to deal with questions from landlords we have an obligation to them you know we want to keep this sector alive we want to continue working in the jobs that we hope to do I hope everyone's the same um but the problem is if you can't have a conversation with a landlord at whatever level you are in the business then you're going to continuously plant seeds of negativity or or worry with them so um for example here we made an an FAQ for internal use where they're able with all the answers to what possibly could come up from the renters reform so that they could confidently answer that um obviously you can engage with things like good law of the CPD you've got the NRLA and of course um, Property Mark, um, you can use those those bits of information to ensure you're always, always up to date. Yeah, um, and and in terms of um, proving a good partner for your landlords, helping them understand these issues, um, that's really a frontline requirement. That's where the relationships are, isn't it? How, how are you thinking about that, Megan? I think if you can't if you can't have a conversation with people um, easily, then you're going to have problems. Now, I I kind of think that it's an opportunity when there's big legislative changes with um, in the industry that actually it it sometimes sends shockwaves through our landlords, and actually it's our time to shine. It's our time to to kind of get them in a cuddle and say to them, right, we're going to look after you. We're going to make sure this happens. So it leads in really beautifully to making sure that your team are fully trained and ready for that conversation um, and making sure that tenants are fully educated too, because um, I'm sure I'm not alone here when I've said how many tenants have rung up and said, well, the law says I can have a dog now. And we go, whoa, no, it doesn't. Um, but the amount of times I've had people go, oh, Megan, can they have a dog? Are they allowed to have a dog now? So it's just making sure that we're all on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the this issue around the business model needing to be reviewed, especially in London. Um, Robert, maybe just, just summarise what, what the key issue there is. Yeah, well, some of you may have missed it, but one thing the white paper um, suggested is we get rid of fixed term tenancies. Now, there's a certain logic about this, because you think about it, if you can't serve a section 21 to get your tenant out, um, what's the point of having a fixed term from the 1st of January to the 1st of December? Nothing's going to happen at the end of that tenancy because tenant will still be there, it'll roll over. So Michael Gove's brilliant idea is to get rid of fixed term tenancies altogether. In other words, the moment your tenant moves in, he's effectively on what you and I might call a rolling periodic tenancy that goes from month to month to month to month until the second coming. Now, you know, there are a lot of implications about this. I mean, number one, it's a, it's a difficult thing for landlords to get their mind around because traditionally landlords start a tenancy on day one, finish it you know, a year later, whatever it may be. But a lot of agents, too, they try and or they actually do invoice commission to a landlord for all the commission they would earn during the fixed term. So give you a crass example, you have a 12-month tenancy, how many London agents in particular will send out an invoice for 12 months commission in that first month? Yes, it makes it a very difficult month for your landlord, he's getting no income at all, but from a cash flow point of view for agents to do that, it's fantastic. You're effectively getting 12 months fees in month one. Absolutely brilliant. Well, if we do get rid of fixed term tenancies and we have a rolling model from month to month to month and your tenant can go at any time by giving you just two months notice, 
how many landlords are going to happily pay 12 months commission when, according to what they read in the Daily Mail, the tenant might be gone in two months' time? So that is going to take some thought if indeed these proposals make it into the, the reform bill. The other thing to think about is, as an industry, we actually get quite a bit of money out of charging landlords for renewals. End of a fixed term, what do we do? We negotiate a new tenancy, or as Megan said, we negotiate a rent increase, and we, we, we charge the landlord accordingly. Well, again, if we don't have a beginning, a middle, and an end, we don't have a fixed term tenancy, just this rolling periodic thing, no one's going to ask us to do a renewal. So again, it's going to be um, something to think about in terms of cash flow. If we're not doing renewals, that could hit fee income. If we're not getting commissioned on 12 months let up front, that's going to hit cash flow. So we need to start thinking about this um, really the moment we see the shape of the, of the new reform bill. But, you know, we've got to think about other rental income, sorry, other, other sources of income. And, you know, we've got down here rent protection, legal insurance. And I think you're quite keen on that, Megan, aren't you? I think I could be the biggest fan of legal protection, but I don't think I'm alone from what I can gather. Um, it's worth its weight in gold. I literally don't think we could exist without it at the moment. Um, we've had, interestingly, a claim from one of these like online TV ad ones, which was really cheap recently, and it's not going well for them. It's really not. So making sure you've got a robust rent and legal protection, and it's not just about the rent. It's the, in fact, I think the legal protection is actually sometimes more important than the rent protection um it was interesting you touched on renewal fees there because um one of the biggest concerns that came out of the renters reform white paper was that um that we would have that because we as an agency have obviously taken the tenant fee act and we've had to almost spread some of that around to try and um you know mitigate that and renewal fees is definitely an area for us that's that's been the case um Interestingly, though, you know, what, what's, what, where are we at? You know, we're going to end up with a situation where we're back in the 80s where landlords would rather properties sat empty than rent their properties out, which is, which is completely ridiculous that we're in that, you know, position. Whereas they might go traveling for 12 months and we could put somebody in a home for 12 months. So there has to find a balance somewhere. But yeah, I, I, I really would say to you guys, if you haven't got someone providing you rent and legal protection, you need to. Well, Megan, do send me your bank details later, um, and uh, uh, I couldn't, couldn't have really better myself. Um, so just before we wrap, let's just talk about some of the positives coming out of the changes. I think we'll just jump on to the next slide, please, Sarah. Um, and um, this first point really is, um, you know, if we're, if we're to believe what we see in the press, although obviously we wouldn't believe what we see in the Daily Mail, would we, Robert? Um, then there are, there are landlords leaving the market. There were fewer landlords. Um, uh, Megan, what are you seeing on that, uh, on that, in that front? I think we sort of touched on it briefly earlier that the accidental landlords are the ones that are most likely to be leaving probably already maybe have gone um you know when they did the stamp duty relief that was a, a good time for them to exit the market um interestingly we talked about this before about fewer landlords but larger portfolios now um my only downside is is that when you have got professional landlords they're more driven by the kind of pounds and pence of everything which sometimes you think oh is that going to work against me but i do think that when landlords are in that position they are more likely to use um they're going to be more worried about who they're going to use as their agent who they're going to spend their money on so again this is an opportunity for you as really good agents the fact that you're sat on a, a call like this and and you're working on your own development I, I think it will come into our own and we'll see a reduction in the kind of crappier 
um, letting agents out there, the small ones that give us all a bad name. Um, and it will be our chance to kind of rise to the top. Yeah, great. And there are other opportunities too here, are there? And uh, I know you've been doing a little bit of uh, matchmaking, can we call it? Yeah, so um, we've got a, a project here that we're working on called the VIP landlords. So um, when we have, say, an accidental landlord that wants to leave the, the portfolio, we've got a pool of people that we've qualified and we have got ready to kind of sweep in and buy those properties and feed them straight back into our portfolio. Um, so rather than them going to the open market um, straight away, we give them about a 10 day um time in that it means that landlords often try and sell them with tenants in situ so it means that the landlord's getting no void periods um the new landlord's going to get no void periods and of course um we're benefiting from not losing a property out of our portfolio now obviously um if the property is going to be empty then obviously the open market is where we've got to go you know we've got to get a we've got to be opening up to all the different opportunities but it is a moment where you can obviously a add another landlord in ensure you're not going to lose out of the portfolio but of course if you're working with any ancillary products um like mortgages and conveyancing it's another opportunity there absolutely and all these things represent change don't they and i certainly think one of the things that you know, we we put a lot of store by good lord is that um you know we view we, we view it as our job to to be on top of that change and to make sure that we're helping our um our agencies through that and making sure that the software we build is is uh, ready for that change and, and keeping people compliant and i think that that for for agencies i think we would say look this these, these changes are are a time to rethink and a time potentially to upgrade and to sort of embrace some of this new technology. But we are not the only rent tech supplier, much as it annoys me sometimes. Um, but but I would say as long as you've got suppliers who are committed to um, supporting you, being being compliant, staying on top of um, all the regulatory changes, then they will be your partners and they will help they will help manage this process. Um, there there is also probably a a, dry, a shift here towards um towards being more fully managed isn't there with uh, to, to 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 help look after these changes and stay on top of things are you are you seeing that megan it's taking foot yes well yeah already actually interestingly our take on 70 percent at the moment are auto- automatically fully managed yeah. um i'm sure i'm not alone when i say that our self-managed landlords are often the ones that get stuck in the legislation trap where they're not maybe yeah. fully up to date or they maybe only understand part of it. Now, there are obviously a good 100,000 of those that are currently with the NRLA, but there's also a good chunk of them that are not with any form of professional body or agent. So um, I think making sure that you're you know, the expert on that, as I said multiple times before, let them come to you, let them talk to you and explain the benefits because whilst it might not be a full managed option, you've also got, you know, rent collection models, making sure you're working with the right landlords will make sure that your teams aren't pushed to absolute breaking point as well. So it's 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 a win-win for everybody. Absolutely. And talking of the professionals and regulation, um, that brings up Roper, doesn't it? And Robert, maybe just, just uh, give us a lot of your final thoughts um for this as we close the session on on, on what roper and the professionalizing yeah I mean, I, I mean roper's a bit on the back burner at the moment you know it came in a couple of years ago with a big fanfare we're going to have more professional agents they're going to have to get examination qualifications etc etc we'll all have the badge we'll all be um regulated hasn't really happened um i think michael goes focus has probably shifted in the last two years but it is still there. And I, you know, as a professional in the industry, I would welcome Roper for all the reasons you can imagine. 
um, it will scream that we are a profession, not simply a, a service industry. So hopefully it'll happen, but I'm afraid, William, at the moment, it's on the back burner. Just, again, watch this space. Okay, very good. So let's just jump finally to how everybody on the call can help. Um, Sarah, if we could have the final slide, please. Um, we're still taking um, signatories. If you, if you check out our newsagent blog on goodlaw.co, you will see uh, we're still, still, you can still sign up to our open letter. Um, if you can capture your screen here, there's a QR code where you can jump straight through it. Um, feel absolutely free to um, email it with a cover note to your local MP. Um, or for that matter, uh, go and visit your local MP. They will run drop-in sessions. Do feel free to, to bring up some of these points uh, with, with your local representative. Um, of course, you can post on social media. That's all very helpful. Helps raise awareness, helps helps um, uh, helps people understand some of the issues and pressures going on and how um, things that help tenants uh, actually can backfire and, and put more pressure on the sector and ultimately ultimately cause more, more stress and pressure on tenants. Um, and um, absolutely build relationships with your local journalists. Um, uh, not, not many journalists follow the sector as keenly as those of us on this webinar and help them understand what's happening, help them understand what's, what's affecting your area. But I'm going to wrap up there. This has been a um, very helpful hour. It is uh, part of everybody's um, continuous professional development. And those of you still on the call will get the certificates um, for that in a few weeks' time. Um, and I just want to say thank you very much to our guests, Robert and Megan, who've been terrific, really helped uh, shed, shed some light on some of these issues. Thank you, everybody. And, and have a rest, great you, rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys.